You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. And let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 14. John chapter 14. We've got some ground to cover this morning in our continuing series called Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. Uh, We are fast approaching the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October the 31st, 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of uh, the castle church there at Wittenberg. And uh, so while we are not looking uh, necessarily in this series at the five solas of the Reformation, we can certainly see them embedded in uh, these things that we believe Uh, that uh, we value, that we hold dear, and uh, we are getting a grip on the confession of our faith. We're studying the biblical uh, doctrines which guide our faith and practice, and uh, we believe those are clarified uh, in the Baptist faith and message. I remind you that the foundational text for this entire series is uh, found in Paul's writing to Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse number 9. Uh, where he is giving uh, the qualifications, the characteristics of godly leadership within the context of uh, the church particularly. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, doctrinal teaching. Doctrine literally means teaching. It means instruction or that which is taught. It is a developed set of truths or practices which are to be learned and followed. We're told uh, that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so uh, just a a quick uh, review of where we've been. We've already looked at Article 1, the Scriptures. Uh, We learned that the Word of God is inspired, it is truthful, it is authoritative, it is complete, uh, and it is God's inspired and completed revelation of Himself to humanity. God has sovereignly, providentially preserved His inerrant and infallible Word for us. And that goes right along with the first of the five solas, in fact. Sola Scriptura says, Scripture alone as our authority. It's not the word of man. It's not papal authority. It's not any of those other things. It is the word of God alone, scripture alone. Article two, uh, we looked at theology proper. It's entitled God. God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does. He is intelligent. He is spiritual, personal, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite. God creates. God rules. God redeems. God judges. God gives life. God loves and God reveals himself. That's one of the things that sets biblical Christianity apart from all of the other world religions. God reveals himself to us, has a desire to have relationship with us. And so he desires a response as he reveals himself to us. That of repentance, turning from our sin to faith in uh, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, He desires the response of love. We love because he first loved us. Uh, Obedience, worship. Uh, reverence because of God's self-disclosure. And then we uh, have come to a more clear understanding of the fact that the one and only living and true God is revealed in Scripture to be a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet still one, a tri-unity. And so then with that, we looked at God the Father. God the Father. God is fatherly over all creation. God is Father 
over all who believe. And it's my hope and prayer this morning that you truly are one of God's children. Uh, Not just by the fact that you exist today, but because you have, in fact, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, Then we looked at Article 2b, at God the Son. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is, uh, in His incarnation as Jesus Christ, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, took upon Himself human nature, identifying with mankind, uh, and yet without sin. Uh, He died a substitutionary death on the cross and made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead uh, with a glorified body, later ascended into heaven. He is now exalted at the right hand of God as the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person uh, is effected the reconciliation between holy God and sinful man. He will return in power and glory to consummate His redemptive Mission. That is God the Son. And today we turn our attention to God the Holy Spirit. I want you to see the wording of the article itself. It's Article 2C uh, and simply says this The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, He enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. Don't forget that. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, He baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through His church. He seals the believer under the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee... I like guarantees, don't you? Is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. Now it is difficult uh, to land on one passage of Scripture uh, that would fully unfold for us the truths uh, of God the Holy Spirit in what we would call an expository way. I'll remind you of of a conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 3 with a guy named Nicodemus, a religious leader of that day. And uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus and had some pretty important questions. And uh, in the course of that conversation, uh, Jesus gives us a picture of the Holy Spirit. He says this in John chapter 3, verse 8. This won't be up on the screen, but just listen carefully. He says, "...the wind blows where it wishes." And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, we had a little fire last night in our backyard um, on purpose, okay? Uh, my family bought me one of those little fire pits. I think it was for Father's Day, and it's finally cooled off enough for us to actually use that. And we uh, did a little fire last night and made some s'mores. That's a good place for an amen right there, by the way. Um, I like some s'mores. Um, one of my favorite things about this time of year. And uh, one of the things that was kind of funny last night is as I was getting the fire going, we are kind of gathering around, the, the wind was kind of swirling. You know, normally when you gather around a campfire, you can kind of figure out which way the wind's blowing, and you, you sit opposite that because you don't want to blow it in your face. Um, but it seemed like everywhere I went, the smoke followed me. 
And then my family reminded me that's because smoke follows beauty, right? So, no. <laughs> Truthfully, we couldn't get it figured out. I mean, it was like one minute it would be kind of blowing this way, the next minute it's blowing that way. And it reminded me of, of this passage right here in John chapter 3. As much as we might have liked to, we could not control the wind. Okay? In fact, we really were having a difficult time discerning from which direction it was blowing. And so that's the picture that Jesus gave Nicodemus of, of, of the Spirit. Mystery is one of the, the, the primary attributes of God the Spirit. Uh, there are several reasons, I, I believe, uh, that to be true. I, I think, for one, we, we lack uh, in, in our humanness uh, an analogy of understanding Spirit. We've already looked at God the Father and God the Son. Well, I, I can understand something of a father. I can understand something of a son because I am both of those. Um, but I confess that I, I don't really have an analogy in my life, uh, in my life experience, to, to, to grasp and understand spirit. Uh, now, we know that we, we are, are spirit. Okay, We have body, soul, and spirit. I, I do understand that. But um, it, we just don't have that, that understanding like we do of a father and a son. Also, the Bible attributes the adjective holy to the Spirit. And so that's why we say God, the Holy Spirit. And anytime you attach the word holy to something, it comes with a, a little bit of mystery. We're like, what, what exactly does that mean? It's God's holiness, complete holiness, perfect holiness that sets God apart from His creation. Uh, and so while we are told to be holy as our Father is holy, uh, that's not something that we've fully come to grasp uh, at this point in our lives. And so uh, why would the Bible then emphasize the Spirit as holy? Well, the unique ministry of the Spirit in our lives is the promotion of holiness. Uh, is to move us uh, in the direction of Christ-likeness, to become more like the Lord. And then I think we also uh, often feel uncomfortable with the idea of spirit, or as it's translated in the King James Version, Holy Ghost. Okay, for some, that's it's a little creepy maybe. Uh, and depending upon your background uh, and kind of how you grew up, uh, the concept of spirit conveys the, uh, the image of that which is immaterial, invisible. Um, however, the emphasis of Scripture uh, in reference to the title spirit really is not on invisibility. Uh, the emphasis on the word spirit in Scripture is on power, the power of the Spirit. And so uh, I am still very much learning about the power of the Spirit. I haven't fully come to understand exactly all that that entails and what that means. Uh, in fact, the longer I live, the more I realize that uh, really I am an authority on human weakness uh, and, and uh, human failures. And I need uh, the abiding and dwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life and ministry. And so uh, these are some of the reasons. And I think the Spirit is, is naturally uh, and many times treated as some sort of a magical force. You know, it's almost as if Christians would say, well, well may the force be with you. You know, that kind of thing. Um, the Spirit remains a mystery because I think far too often we want to use uh, the Spirit. And so we attempt to manipulate the Spirit of God. We cry out for the filling of the Spirit, for example, that others will recognize our name. Or we desire empowerment so that our ministry uh, may expand. Uh, I think Dr. Landrum Lavelle, who once served as the president of New Orleans Seminary, 
gave a word of rebuke that I think is very timely. And he gave this word of rebuke to anyone who would attempt to manipulate the mystery of the Spirit of God. He said it this way, The sovereign wind of the Spirit, with just one tiny puff, can blow all of man-made dividers and partitions. We cannot contain him. We cannot restrain him. We cannot tame him. He will not be housebroken. He will not be taught to heal. And he will not jump through any denominational hoops. I think that's a timely word uh, for the day in which we live. What, what I find as it relates to the, the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, is, is really there are some extremes. And I think most of us can identify those. Uh, there, there are those on one end of the spectrum, and this is, I would say, as a Baptist pastor, this is the area in which we tend to err, okay? And that's to downplay the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, okay? In fact, a lot of us, we can stand rather motionless, rather lifeless, looking as if uh, our uh, you know, best friend passed away this last week, all while singing about how amazing God's grace is and everything, because we're afraid that if we become any more demonstrative than that, then we're going to be labeled as something we're not. You know, and so we almost push aside the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we almost downplay that. And it's almost as if anything that's maybe a little unpredictable or you know, that might really move me, I've got to kind of shy away from that. That's one extreme. Okay, then, then you've got another extreme uh, that, that I would label as affectation, which is kind of a, a, a false working up of the Spirit. You know, it's like, man, church, we've got to make it kind of like a pep rally at the local high school, and we've got to, you know, get the crowd going, and, and, and so we can do that in a false sort of way. Okay, now I would say this if, if you're one of those people who regularly finds yourself describing a worship service or a worship experience in terms of what you feel, you are probably erring to the side of affectation. I mean, if you found yourself often saying, well, you know, I'm just not feeling it. I just didn't feel it. I don't feel like what... Hey, if, if all of our worship is grounded in our feelings, quite honestly, if, if most of us are honest, there are going to be a lot of times we don't feel like worshiping, right? I mean, I'll just be honest. There, there are a lot of Sundays I get up and I don't, I don't feel it. Okay, but you know what happens? I know that my faith is grounded in truth, truth. And it's the truth that drives those feelings. Now, make no mistake, Jesus himself said those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. All right. And so there are those extremes. I I would hope and pray our goal would be that somewhere in, in the middle there is an expectation. Okay, that we come together with a full expectation that the Spirit of God is going to be faithful to to minister to us by the word of God. Okay, And that means a number of different things that we're going to look at this morning. And so I guess I would caution us this morning about the extremes of like you know, pushing down the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's kind of unknown to us or maybe a little mysterious. But then on the other hand, I think we have to be careful that we not try to work something up ourselves uh, that is not ours to do. And so with that, let's look first of all this morning at the person of the Holy Spirit. And with that, we're going to look at John chapter 14. We're going to look at verse number 16. Now, remember the context of John 14 here. This is where Jesus says, I I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
Okay, now as we continue to, to, to read down in this same chapter, though, uh, you'll find uh, beginning really in verse number 15, it's where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. All right? Um, it's where he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, it says there in verse number 16, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That is a direct reference to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, The one called alongside. The word is paraclete. Uh, it's a word that means called alongside. Okay, And so Jesus is saying, I'm physically going to leave you. And you have to know that that caused some real issues for his followers, right? I mean, they, these guys had left their, their earthly vocations and different things to follow Jesus. So sure, certainly they were expecting, hey, we're going to set up this earthly kingdom, overthrow Roman rule. We get to be a part of that. It's going to be awesome. And then Jesus starts this language of, check this out, I, I'm, I'm going to leave. And so you can just imagine how that affected them. But Jesus made it clear, I'm not just going to leave you hanging. Okay, I'm not going to leave you to fend for yourself. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And then if you skip down to verse number 26, he goes on to say, but the helper, and here's the clarification for us, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he goes on to say there, peace I leave with you. And so um, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now many people, again, think of the Holy Spirit as some sort of an impersonal force. Uh, I read a story the other day of a young boy who prayed. Uh, he prayed to God, to the Son, and to the other one. <laughs> you know, there's, there seems to be a lot of confusion on this. The Word of God says that the Spirit is a person who has the task of promoting holiness in our lives and empowering us for service. Um, Jesus himself says here uh, that, that he will leave us the Holy Spirit, the helper. Maybe in other translations you have a different word there, counselor, comforter, uh, those kinds of things. Jesus promised to send a he, not an it. Now, if the Spirit is merely a power or a force, as it were, then very quickly the question becomes, how can I get more of it? You see what that does? Perhaps like Simon the sorcerer, remember there in Acts chapter 8, we would, we would begin to wonder, can we purchase it? Or, or we could become dispensers of it? And no, the Spirit is not an it, the Spirit is a he. And so then the real question for followers of Jesus Christ becomes not how can I get more of the Holy Spirit necessarily, but how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? Okay, and there's a huge distinction there. Okay, we're not going to get into a, a lot of uh, the teachings in terms of some of the giftings of the Spirit, some of those things this morning. We're looking in, in really kind of a very general sense at the work ministry uh, of the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot of people who mistakenly think, well, I've got to do something to get more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the real question needs to be, how is it that the Holy Spirit can get more of me? And so if we understand Scripture, we know that at the moment that we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. All right, That doesn't necessarily mean that we are filled with the Spirit of God. That's why we are told very clearly in Scripture, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And literally it reads there, be being filled with the Spirit. Okay, So this is an ongoing thing. Now understand this. 
You cannot at the same time be filled with yourself and filled with the Holy Spirit. So the degree to which you and I empty <laughs> are emptied of ourselves, okay? We say, you know what? I'm not on the throne. I'm not large and in charge. I'm, I'm going to yield that authority in my life to, to the Lord. Okay, as we are emptied of ourselves, it's to that degree that we can then be filled with the Spirit. Okay, and we will bear the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so if you're full of yourself, you, you cannot then at the same time be filled with the Spirit. Okay, if you're filled with fear, if you're filled with pride, if you're filled with arrogance, any of those things, you cannot at the same time be filled with the Spirit. And so we are to daily, regularly be praying, God, I must decrease, you must increase. Okay, so while you may be indwelt by the Spirit, that does not necessarily mean this morning that you are filled with the Spirit, walking as one who is filled with the Spirit. And so how can uh, the Lord control me so that I may live my life under Him? That should really be our question. Here's the second thing I want us to look at today, and that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. We look over to that next chapter, John chapter 15. And if you look at verse number 26, you notice again he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. Okay, here we see the Trinity. All right, are you picking that up? The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will, notice what he says, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. And then if you uh, look over in chapter 16, verse number 14, he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So then the purpose of the Spirit is the exaltation of Christ in the life of the believer. The Baptist faith and message states, He exalts Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? He exalts Christ. The Spirit's ministry in your life and my life as children of God is the exaltation of Christ. Now, how do we know that we have had an experience of the Spirit? Well, when the Spirit does a genuine work in a believer's life, Jesus exhibits his prominence in that believer's life. Um, back to my, my uh, fire last night in my backyard. Because that smoke was blowing toward me, it seemed like most of the evening... I naturally was just saturated in that smell. Okay, it went in the house. I mean, I just smelled like smoke. And I told Christy, I said, I I'm going to take a shower. I'm, I, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to smell like smoke. Um, but then I noticed, even this morning as I was getting ready, that I'd still smell. And then I realized my glasses smelled like smoke. Okay, it was like they were permeated with that smell. Well, that, that would be the idea. Uh, as the Holy Spirit has has the freedom to work in our lives, and as we empty ourselves of us, and we are filled with the Spirit, we're, we're going to begin to take on uh, that, that aroma, we might say. Okay, We're going to begin to look more like Jesus Christ. That's going to be more evident in our lives each and every day. And so the Spirit of God will lead a believer to Christ-likeness. The Spirit exalts Christ in us. The Spirit exalts Christ in the church. Okay, if we as individuals make up the church, then that would mean the Spirit exalts Christ in the church. The Spirit exalts Christ in the fellowship of the church. We call that koinonia, koinonia fellowship. And so that we share all things in common because of Jesus. 
All believers share in the common life that is brought into existence by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then Jesus is Lord of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And so the Spirit exalts Christ in not only the fellowship of the church, but the mission of the church. And so just as the Spirit compelled Jesus into the wilderness there in Mark's Gospel chapter 1, the Spirit of God inevitably will drive us into the mission field. If you remember our study of Acts not too, too long ago, we see there described many times the Spirit compelling believers into the mission. Okay, to be on mission, to be outwardly focused, propelling them into that. So the purpose of the Spirit of God is to exalt Christ in the fellowship and the mission of the church. And we'll see that tie-in here in just a few moments. So that is the person and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Let's consider thirdly this morning the plan of the Holy Spirit. We stay in John chapter 16. I want you to look at verses 8 through 11 with me here. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Remember, this is Jesus saying, hey, I'm getting ready to exit. Okay, but you're going to have the Holy Spirit because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the plan of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's plan, again, illuminates the Christ, the central figure of the Scriptures. I thank God that, uh, that I can analyze and I can study the Word of God uh, each week. I can do that through exegesis. I can do that through uh, syntactical relationships. We use insights drawn from, from background and from culture and history and geography and a number of different things. I can analyze the literary genre of a text, and in all of that I can practice good hermeneutics. But here's the bottom line. Above and beyond our linguistic, our, what we call our hermeneutic practices, the Spirit of God enables our minds to discern spiritually the truth of God. The Spirit opens our hearts, enables us to understand the Word in the words of Scripture. And so the Spirit's plan... Is in exalting Christ includes then drawing people to Christ. Drawing people to Christ. The Spirit convicts of sin, it says here, righteousness, judgment in relation to Christ. The Spirit of God convicted me of my sin as an eight-year-old boy on November the 24th, 1974 in Garland, Texas. And I sensed this heaviness within my spirit that I was, even at that age, a sinner in need of a Savior. And it was the Holy Spirit of God that drew me to the answer for my need. And that was the person of Jesus Christ, the one who died in my place. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in me. The Holy Spirit uh, draws people to Christ. The Spirit's plan involves His birthing us into new life in Christ. And so when you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You experience a birth from above, a spiritual birth. Remember in that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? What did he say? Hey, Nick, you must be born again. You must be born again. And, and, and Nicodemus is like, well, what? How can I enter a second time into my mother's womb? No, you must be born by the Spirit, okay? Born again into new life in Christ. It, it involves... Uh, God's plan to place us in the body of Christ. 
So God doesn't leave us as orphans, remember? We looked at that a couple of weeks ago when God the Father. Now, the, the Spirit unites our lives with the, the church, the people of God. That's why, again, the, the, the statement here, the Baptist faith and message, uh, made an, an, an important addition, I believe, uh, to, because of some confusion about the biblical language of the, the baptism of the Spirit. It affirms this baptism of the Spirit. At the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. And so when I, when I turned from my sin to faith in Christ, I experienced an immersion into life in the Spirit, life in the body of Christ at my new birth. And then the Spirit's plan cultivates Christian character within us. And so as a follower of Christ, it's not just about me gritting my teeth and turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person. In fact, Jesus never came just to make us better people. Okay, Jesus came to make dead people alive. Uh, and then with that, then he, he cultivates a Christ-likeness within us. Why do you suppose that we call it the fruit of the Spirit? And so if by the grace of God you happen to see some, uh, some, some love and patience and long-suffering, all of the things that are mentioned there in Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. When you see those things in me, and I, and I hope that you do, th- that's not the fruit of Mike. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, that's not just Mike trying to be a better guy. Okay, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the Spirit's work in me, cultivating that Christ-likeness. Okay, then we have the pledge of the Spirit, the pledge of the Spirit. And for that, let's look over at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul the Apostle is writing here to the saints who are in Ephesus. And he makes sure that they understand, verses 13 and 14, that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, notice what he says next, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Then notice the language of verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the pledge of the Holy Spirit. Now the Baptist faith and message states he seals the believer under the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Which means the presence of the Spirit in our life is our guarantee. Now, what is this talking about? Well, in the first century world, the seal indicated a number of things. The seal authenticated Okay, much like in our culture, uh, the Spirit of God certifies and authenticates us as children of God. He, uh, you know, in, in the same way that we use seals today, a notary, for example, places a, a seal. They have a seal and they emboss a document uh, signifying, authenticating, certifying that the signature belongs to you or to me, whoever's uh, identity is associated with that signature. The first century seal also indicated ownership. Uh, we even see this when the Romans sealed the tomb of Jesus. Uh, they were communicating to, uh, that, that the contents of that tomb uh, now belonged to Rome. That's what they were doing. The Spirit of God residing in our life communicates that we belong to Him. Uh, and so indicating ownership. The seal uh, would denote protection. And the Holy Spirit protects us. Satan may, may touch us, but Satan cannot grasp us. All right, so the Holy Spirit is God's pledge. 
Now, if you've ever uh, done a, a commercial transaction, it kind of provides the, the, the background for this whole concept here. The Holy Spirit functions as the earnest of our inheritance. And so in a real estate transaction, you are required to put down some earnest money, it's called. That earnest money serves as, as your pledge that you're going to go through with the deal. And if you back out of the deal, then typically you, you forfeit your earnest money. Uh, well, what Scripture is teaching us here is that the Holy Spirit himself is the pledge that the one who began a good work in us will bring it to its completion. We see that in Philippians chapter 1. So he's the, the down payment, so to speak, the guarantee. Uh, and so uh, I, I love the fact that in the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it changed the wording from assurance of salvation to the guarantee of our salvation. That's the Holy Spirit. And then finally this morning, let's consider the power of the Holy Spirit. I said earlier uh, that it's not the invisibility of the Spirit that's emphasized in Scripture. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's emphasized in Scripture. And for that, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you kind of know the lay of the land here in 1 Corinthians particularly, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. He even begins the chapter by saying, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. And he gives us a listing and talks about the varieties of the gifts. But then you'll notice in verse 4, even he says, but the same Spirit. And so there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God. And then with that, uh, if you look at verse number 11, he says, all these, notice what it says next, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Empowered, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay, and so again, the statement that we read earlier says uh, that the Spirit bestows the spiritual gifts by which they, meaning believers, serve God through his church. So the Apostle Paul here wrote, the Spirit distributes the gifts to each one as he wills. So the, the Spirit wills what spiritual gifts you and I are given to serve the body of Christ. We're not all given the same gifts. Uh, I have no doubt that some of you are gifted in ways that I am not, thankfully. Because uh, there are some areas where I am definitely not gifted. Uh, and I suspect that by the grace of God, there are some ways in which I'm gifted that you are not. Now, that's the great thing about the body of Christ. He puts all of that together as he wills so that we can then serve through uh, the church. And uh, that's the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's based upon what he wants to reveal uh, to the body about Christ through you, through me. Now let's close by considering the word that, that we are most familiar with or most often gets attached to the Holy Spirit and, and, and the working of the Holy Spirit. And that is the word charisma. Okay, Maybe you are more familiar with it in, uh, as, as it's called charismatic. Okay, um, Charisma or charismaton. Uh, serves as really it's a transliteration of the term for spiritual gifts here uh, in the Greek New Testament. Charisma is a, it's really a compound word. Uh, the root charis means grace. And so a spiritual gift is a grace in our life. Uh, so we, we don't deserve this gift. It's not as if you know, the Holy Spirit says, wow, Mike, you're pretty awesome, and so you, here, you get this gift. 
Uh, that, that's not how it works, okay? It's, it's purely by grace. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. We serve by grace, okay? The, the suffix ma, charisma, uh, indicates results. And so a spiritual gift then is a grace of God in your life and my life that produces results for God's glory and not our own. Okay? If it continually comes back to you or I being glorified, then you can pretty well know that that's a gift misused. Okay? Or it's not a gifting of the Spirit at all. Okay? Uh, and so it's for God's glory alone. So the final analysis is this. The Holy Spirit empowers us to utilize our gifts in the context of the local church. Remember what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God empowers the believer and the church in worship, in evangelism, and in service. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.